With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody, I hope you're well. It's Chris here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode has been slightly re-edited since it was first transmitted. And the reason it's been re-edited is that a listener has pointed out that some of my commentary in the Chris Cash section, which is where we talk about Mr. Chris Cash, who was accused of spying for China, that we don't actually know if he's guilty or innocent. And some of my commentary might well have led you to believe that he was guilty. So I want to apologise that if my wording did lead you into the belief that he was guilty, when it's actually an ongoing case. So I apologise for that. That was my bad. I should have been more careful in how I spoke about it. So apart from that, I hope you enjoy the episode. Take care. Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Espresso Martini. Chris, how are you? I am good, uh, except for I'm on cold number six, um, so <laughs> I'm uh, all drugged up with various sort of uh, things to stop me from coughing, so hopefully I won't have a coughing fit and die during this broadcast. So. <laughs> that's that's good. I would not I would not want that to happen. It might be good, no. like exciting content. But it could be, it yeah. Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably not good for the future of the show. Could do a little cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tune in next time to see if Chris survives. <laughs> Yeah, I'll try not to like choke on a coughing sweet when he's that It's been a year of of yeah. of espresso martini. That's that's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the day we recorded that first episode was the day that the Russians nearly shot down a rivet spy uh, a rivet joint spy plane. Yeah, um, and that could have been a really historic day. So thankfully, that jet didn't get shot down, and we live a year on to tell yeah. the tale. <laughs> yeah i know the year is year is year has flown by mm. um we've we have we've uh we've we've done some good stuff together in the last year i think, I think. so i think yeah. some really good stuff and people yeah. seem to i hope i hope everybody listening agrees i think we, you know especially you matt i think you've done some great interviews thank you yeah and um you know it's it, from what i've seen of the stats and the reviews people are liking what we're doing so uh That's so that. we must yeah. we've got to keep it up <laughs> yeah so i had my um my interview with uh, David McCloskey about his yeah. new book, uh, Moscow X, that came out on, on Monday of this yeah. week, so that's out now. And you got some exciting stuff coming up coming yeah. up too. Yeah, well, I've got Calder Walton, um, mm-hmm. and we talk about his book, Spies, and that's been a bit of a uh, one in the running for a while. Um, yep. And then I've got a new episode about the uh, the murder of Patrice Lumumba uh, in the Congo and potential CIA links to that murder. And that's a... Yeah, that, that was a very interesting episode and kind of a, obviously, sadly, a quite a disturbing sort of aspect of, of history, really. Um, really? So uh, I hope hope uh, people find that episode of interest, you know, some new information sort of come out. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I think that uh, I think that should be an interesting one. So that'll be coming out, I think, in a week's time. Great, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear it. I'm like totally unfamiliar with that stuff. So it'll be all, yeah. all news to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there's much to cover today. Uh, so we'll get right into it. 
Uh, we have several interesting stories for you. Uh, with some help from Five Eyes, Canada accuses India of assassinating a Sikh dissident on its soil. Uh, we have new details about Chinese and Russian spies in the UK. Estonia's departing military intelligence chief looks back on his eventful career, and after his release from a U.S. prison, notorious arms dealer Victor Boot is beginning a second act in local Russian politics. And an extra shot, our bonus show for Patreon subscribers, we're taking a look at Russell Brand and his brand. Get it, Chris? <laughs> yeah, like it. Uh, his, his brand of disinformation and conspiracy mongering, uh, and share with you some exciting rumors about the future of the Bond franchise. But to access Extra Shot, you'll first need to be a Patreon subscriber, and you can do that in just a couple minutes by going to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Uh, Chris, what do what do folks get for directly supporting the show? Well, you can get two things, really, depending on which level you go for. You either get uh -huh. a set of Secrets and Spies coasters, or if you go up to the next level, you get a Secrets and Spies coffee cup. Um, so yeah, they're pretty they're pretty cool those cups actually. Yeah, well, you guys should you guys should sign up and yeah. uh, get one. Well, thanks in advance for your support, and a huge thank you to existing subscribers. Uh, your generosity helps keep this podcast going. Okay, so our first story today has sent shockwaves through diplomatic and intelligence circles uh, and focuses a recent New York Times article titled U.S. Provided Canada with Intelligence on Killing of Sikh Leader by Julian Barnes. The article outlines the role of American intelligence agencies in assisting Canada to unravel complex assassination plots. So here are some key points from the article. Uh, American intelligence agencies assisted Canada in the investigation into the June killing of Sikh separatist leader Hardy Singh Najjar in the Vancouver area. Canada developed the most definitive intelligence linking India to the plot, including intercepted communications of Indian diplomats in Canada. The United States did not have advanced information about the plot or evidence of India's involvement until after Najjar was killed. U.S. officials adhered to the duty-to-warn doctrine and would have informed Canada if they had prior knowledge of the plot. The disclosure of U.S. intelligence involvement risks entangling the U.S. in the diplomatic dispute between Canada and, and India. The accusation of Indian government involvement in the killing has led to diplomatic tensions, including the expulsion of intelligence officers and visa suspensions. Canada has not released specific intelligence details to avoid compromising the ongoing investigation. Canadian officials received intelligence from multiple countries, including intercepted communications of Indian diplomats in Canada. So, Chris, I know you've been doing kind of a, a deep dive on your research yeah. into, yeah. into who this who this man was all about. Yeah, I got a bit carried away. I, I, honestly, it's not an area I know a lot about, so I apologize in advance now if I do make some errors. But um, so I suppose my first broad thought is obviously if uh, Canadian intelligence is correct, India is and India is behind this killing, then they've become part of a concerning trend of countries who are ordering the assassination of political opponents on foreign soil um and obviously it's the sort of activity that we usually uh, associate with russia also the saudi government and so india's now joined this rather disturbing list of countries that have done that um so according to local reporting yeah two heavyset men apparently shot um hardeep singh najar and um at the nearby temple where he was the head in a town called surrey which is um, and Surrey, funnily enough, is uh, the, the county where I come from originally in the UK, and it's a city in Canada, and it shares some names. But anyway, yeah. um, and these shooters apparently escaped in a car that was waiting nearby. Now, there's some CCTV footage that's um, not been released publicly, but has been seen by certain people. And I just saw a report this morning where apparently on this CCTV, it shows Mr. Najjar getting into his truck 
and then his truck being blocked by a van and then another car pulls up beside his truck and the gunman open fire then the vehicles speed off and sometime later the gunmen swap cars and escape in a silver car and apparently it took 15 minutes for the police to arrive and then there was a dispute between the royal canadian mounted police and the Surrey police as to who had jurisdiction over the lead of the investigation into this shooting. So, so that's quite mm. interesting. Obviously, both sides now deny that, but apparently that's what happened. Um, so Mr. Najjar was accused by the Indian government of being associated with the Harlistan Tiger Force, which the Indian government have designated a terrorist group. And um, Najjar, he rejected those allegations, and he said that he was an advocate for peaceful means to create a Sikh state called Khalistan, which is an independent Sikh state. And the Khalistan movement goes back to the 1930s, and apparently it kind of goes back to when um, British rule was coming to a close, and there was a sense of opportunity on the Sikh side to create their own state. Um, and this particular ideology is very popular in the Punjab region of India, which has a Sikh majority. Um, and apparently this movement reached its sort of zenith of popularity in the sort of 70s and 80s with various groups uh, and unfortunately, various groups in the name of that movement have been involved in high-profile assassinations, bombings, and hijackings. And in the 1980s, there was an armed insurgency that led to the death of thousands of people, and the insurgency was later quite dramatically crushed by the Indian government. Um, the Sikh community are actually divided on this topic about independence and, and whether they need their own independent state. And it does appear to be now modest support for the movement today. The Indian government have blamed the Pakistani intelligence services as well as supporters in Canada, Italy and the UK for backing a rise in recent militant activity associated with the Khalistan movement. Um, now, Pakistan has been particularly singled out by the Indian government for exploiting this cause to destabilise Indian politics. So there's something very interesting kind of going on there. Um, and there is certainly some history of Pakistani financial support in the 80s. Um, with some of the sort of activities that I described earlier. The Khalistan movement, as I mentioned earlier, does have a sort of modest support, but it seems to be in the diaspora communities abroad where that support's more popular. Um, and I think that tends to be quite common, isn't it? I think it's because when, when people live abroad, they kind of look at their roots a bit more. Um, and so, you know, like famously in Boston, you had quite a lot of support from Irish Americans for the IRA and yeah. so on back in the in the 70s and 80s so i think that's quite interesting that and there's a big support in the uk for this Khalistan movement as well najir was wanted in india under india's terrorist act for several cases including a 27 sorry a 2007 cinema bombing in the punjab that killed six people and injured 40 and he's also connected to a 2009 assassination plot involving a sikh indian politician called ruldas singh and he's also been accused of running terrorist training camps in British Columbia for supporters ready to carry out attacks in, in India. So um, he is quite a controversial figure, Najjar. Um, and at the time of his death, he'd been planning a non-binding referendum for Sikhs living in British Columbia about the creation of an independent state in India. So you could see he was sort of very much stirring the pot on this issue um, and I'm assuming this issue is probably as contentious in the Sikh community as Brexit was in the British community a few years ago um, and um, and this Sikh separatist movement has been a long source of tension in the Canada-India relationship and uh, obviously this situation um, has led to his assassination has led to an all-time low in, in India Canada relations right now and obviously the Indian government strongly denies being involved in the killing 
Um, and one could speculate that there are a certain number of groups and countries such as Pakistan who could use the tensions to their own end. Um, and also there's another shooting that happened just a year before in Surrey, which strikes me as interesting because it's kind of similar to what happened. So this is the, so another man called um, Rapidman Singh Malik, who was connected to a 1985 Air India bombing, which okay. killed 329 people. He last year was acquitted of being involved in the bombing, but then was later shot in Surrey, not in not too dissimilar fashion to uh, Mr. Najjar. So I do wonder, just speculating out loud for a moment, whether there's a connection to this Air India plot somehow, and whether Mr. Najjar might have been a, a victim maybe of somebody who was connected um, to a family member killed in that Air India bombing. Um, yeah. the, the fact that there were two shootings in Surrey involving prominent Sikh separatists in the space of a year just strikes me as an interesting kind of coincidence. Yeah, that um, seems too much to be an accident. It does. So then the question is, is the is the are the individuals either being manipulated or exploited by the Indian government? Could they be being exploited by the Pakistani government or are they acting independently? Uh -huh. It's an interesting one, that one. Um, so though that was sort of my deep dive into this this topic that I don't know an awful lot about. So I'm quite yeah. nervous. I hope I haven't made a complete cock up of it, but I, I've sort of done my best to sort of try and understand as much as I can about it. Yeah, well, that was that's quite interesting. I mean, I was very, I was very unfamiliar with the whole with the whole movement, and, and this man, I had honestly never heard of him before. Yeah. Um. Well, one of the things that that struck me about this story is like the extremely high bar for the intelligence that you would have to have for Justin Trudeau, the leader of a democratically elected country. You yeah, know. Yeah. Um, to go out and publicly accuse Narendra Modi, the leader of another democratic country of orchestrating an assassination plot on their soil like that's something that you cannot be wrong like the intelligence has to be absolutely 100 percent ironclad like there can be no doubt if you're going to go out and at that level and accuse i mean i think it would be one thing if you did this between intelligence chiefs you know like the head yeah. of the canadian sis goes mm. to his indian counterpart and says like we know what you did here and you know and, and and protest that mm -hmm. way or if it was at like a foreign minister level you know but to 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 do that it has to be it has to be quite has to be quite substantial um the other thing here that was interesting to me is um the five eyes dynamic here so the article here kind of says that that the canadians um developed most of the intelligence that would lead them to this conclusion but that other intelligence provided by the u.s added extra context mm, to, to help mm, them come to that mm, conclusion. And there isn't mm. enough, there isn't enough details in the article that I would kind of have anything to latch on to, to kind of speculate on, on what sort of intelligence that would be. Um, I, I really, I, I really don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you, the article talks about the duty to warn issue that, you know, you have one five eyes member finding information about a plot in, in another five eyes members country and you know that that duty to to that that, that was interesting to me um i i think as as you know you said that um that this man was no he was no saint i mean i think you know under the norms of free speech and stuff i think 
if if you have the sort of political belief that there should be an independent Sikh nation in Punjab, that's one thing to you know politically advocate for those for that kind of a, a you know development, but to operationalize that in a way that you would try to achieve it through violence or to orchestrate you know terrorist attacks or or militant training camps or something on the soil of a third country. I mean, that's sort of where it, it gets beyond, you know, what's, what's acceptable yeah. clearly. Yeah. But the difference is, I mean, it's a, it's a troubling norm then that's being kind of broken by this. I mean, I'm thinking of like Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington post journalist, a U S green card holder who was, um, you know, cut up with a bone saw by the Saudis in their embassy. Um, it's a, it's a, kind of a troubling development that you have democratically elected countries orchestrating assassination plots on the soil of another democratically elected country. Like if, if India had, you know, intelligence that this man was trying to plan or orchestrate terrorist activities from Canadian soil, the mechanism to solve that is the Indians take that information to the Canadians and the Canadians handle it. You know, like you don't go and just shoot someone no on the street and it does make me wonder whether that's information is quite sketchy because i would have thought if the indian um government presented such information to the canadians they would have taken it seriously and also i would have thought that the canadians would have detected that themselves by now right oh yeah unless they were there was a policy back in the early in the late 90s in the uk allegedly where mi5 had this sort of policy of they wanted to keep an eye on al-qaeda members and stuff in london so they kind of wouldn't disrupt them they knew they would go out to bosnia and fight and things like that and it wouldn't stop them and the idea was that it's better to have those people where we can keep an eye on them than having them elsewhere where we can't right um that that is disputed of whether that actually was an official policy but it's certainly an interesting one if that's the case and it does make you wonder whether the canadians may if it was terrorist training camps in British Columbia, whether the Canadians were, I don't know, keeping a lid on it for their own purposes, who knows? Um, there's another interesting thing to this story as well is the fact that, um, so I don't think the intelligence pointed to a plot before the plot took place, but at mm -hmm. the same time, he had had enough threats, Mr. Najad had enough threats to his life where he had met with the police on multiple occasions to talk about his safety. And I think his, um, I think it was his son who asked on his behalf about whether he asked the local police whether he could be issued with a bulletproof vest or whether he should wear one. Uh, and apparently, the police said to him they didn't have the equipment to do that. So it does seem like that the, um, at least the police or the authorities uh, seemed a bit reluctant to give him overt protection. But again, more details might come out later on. It's a bit of an yeah. odd one that one. Um, and also he was meeting with the Canadian intelligence services uh, on a monthly basis, apparently, the Canadian CSIS, which I believe is the Foreign Intelligence Service in Canada, yeah. isn't it? Um, which is sort of the mirror of MI6. And I don't know what those meetings are about. So was he somehow an asset for the um, Canadian SIS? Um, but then if he was, would he have not got better protection? But in saying that, we've had assets in this country working for MI6 who equally ended up coming in harm's way in some way or another. Yeah. Um, and so whether did the Canadians drop the ball a bit? I don't know. I know, I do know 
um, at least from a Canadian military point of view, they do seem a little bit underfunded. Um, so I don't know whether the intelligence services are also suffering from a, a lack of funding and love or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. There's a lot of questions. I'm sure more information will probably come to light in due, due course. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it's sort of the broader diplomatic game at play here. Mm. I think it's also very bad timing, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. like, it's India is potentially a crucial partner in 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 opposing China. Yeah, you know, um, and it's kind of un unclear as to what direction they they want to go in that regard. If they want to be more closely aligned with the West or with or with China, I mean, traditionally, you know, in India is is the world's largest democracy and and has been closely associated with the West, but I mean, that's kind of, that could potentially change in the future. I mean, so you have like the BRICS group, mm -hmm. uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, that I think Russia and China are very open that they see that group as kind of a new um, axis to oppose the U.S. and the kind of, you know, Western dominated world order i don't think india sees their membership in 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 BRICS to that mm. end mm. um i think they just see it as a as a collection of of very large economies that are kind of looking out for their for their own interests mm. but it's a it's a potential that that kind of change could develop in the future you know and if you if you really basically we don't have the political capital right now to go and and beat up on india as much as the Indians just shooting someone on Canadian mm. soil is kind of mm. distasteful. Mm. Mm. There's there's bigger issues at play here, and mm. I don't know, I don't know what the Canadians do about this other than yeah. other than complain. I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think also Modi's quite a problematic and contentious figure himself. He I mean, is. It, he know, is. He's weakened democratic institutions. He's quite a hardliner. Yeah. So again, it's not impossible to imagine he could have ordered his intelligence services to carry out an assassination. Oh sure. Um. So yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean that 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 Hindu nationalist movement that mm. has been really on the rise since he came to power has been so yeah, yeah. hardline and kind of mm. stamping out any kind of dissenting views. I mean, they're like discrimination and the violence against Muslims yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in India is, is well-documented and it, it's not yeah. getting better. No. And also they could well be using this to target the Sikhs because the Sikhs are minority sure. as well. I think if yeah. I remember correctly, they only make up 2% of India's population. If I've read that correctly. Um, but it, it, you know, they're not exactly a majority either. So yeah, there are, if, if Modi is stoking some sort of um, religious tensions to benefit himself, this assassination could well be somehow connected to that, you know? Yeah. It's, so I think, yeah, definitely everybody should be keeping an eye on this because, um, you know, as you're saying, it's a, uh, one of the largest democracies and a very important partner for the future in, in any sort of tensions with China. Yeah. Country with the world's highest population now. It, it, mm, it surpassed mm, China. Yeah. And, and India... Is also kind of close with Russia, which is a bit problematic as well. Yes. Um, you know, during the Cold War, it was close with the Soviet Union, and now it's close with Russia during the war of Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, India is a bit of an interesting kind of partner. <laughs> so, I mean, to be a bit to be a bit crude here, maybe, but I think it, it's a situation where even though Modi's India is kind of not the best as mm. as as we would want them to be, it's in the broader sort of 
sphere of things, I think mm-hmm. it's it's better to have them inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Yeah. Yeah. You well, know? This is it. This is it. Politics, international politics is never perfect. Um, and if you only, you know, sadly, if you only sort of team up with people who do everything you want them to do, you probably have a very short list of, of international partners. So Yeah. Know. And you're going to push away a lot of potentially really valuable allies into the arms yeah. of your adversaries. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a messy business. It really is. Yep. All right. So our next up today, our second story. Uh, We have five Bulgarian nationals have appeared in a UK court accused of participating in a covert Russian spy ring operating within the country. Uh, They're alleged to have conducted surveillance against potential targets spanning from August 2020 to February 2023. The suspects are believed to have aided Russia in planning hostile actions potentially involving abductions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here are a few key points from this significant case uh, detailing their roles. And this is from a BBC News article. Um, So it says five Bulgarian nationals accused of being part of a Russian spy ring um, operating in the UK appeared in court recently. They are alleged to have conspired to gather information useful to the Russians conducting surveillance between August and February. Um, The suspects are accused of assisting Russia in conducting hostile actions against targets. Um, They did not enter pleas and were remanded in custody under the Official Secrets Act. Uh, Orlin Rusev, the alleged organizer, managed the spying operations from the UK and the group had a connection with a person known as uh, Jan Marsalek, I believe is how you say that, uh, who is not charged in the case. Uh, the five defendants are scheduled to appear at the Old Bailey on October 13th. Uh, Chris, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, quite a few things, actually. Um, so obviously the first standout for me is they're accused of carrying out surveillance on people targeted by Russia. Um, and it kind of feeds into something I've been saying for a while i've always had this belief in the uh, build up to the scripple poisoning that there were mm-hmm. russian operatives working locally in the uk conducting surveillance in the build up yep. to that assassination now obviously these people have nothing to do with that case because they 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 were operating between august 2020 and february 2023 so we can't connect them to scripple but maybe their predecessors were um in some way so i find that really interesting and disturbing and as you mentioned it involved um you know, they wanted to collect um, information on targets who potentially could be abducted yeah. or whatever. Apparently, they were also accused of looking at military bases in Germany, which isn't mentioned in the BBC article. I saw that when just reading about this generally online. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something interesting there. And obviously, their highest their activity was during COVID. So I wonder if they stood out in some way to MI5 counterintelligence um, when they were conducting their surveillance operations on the empty streets of London during sort of uh, 2020. Um, that's, yeah, that's you never not know. good for no. a for a surveillance perspective that there's no one else on the streets but you it must have been because i I, honestly london um during august 2020 was the the period where we were encouraged to go out again (laughs) Uh and that that, uh, then another lockdown which i think the second lockdown was around about october 2020 memory serves me correct and then london was a ghost town up until about april 2021 so um it was very you know it would have been very easy to stand out um, in certain situations, if you're hanging around outside places and stuff, or just sitting right. in a car um, during COVID. So I don't know. I, obviously, again, there may not be no COVID connection, which is interesting sort of timing there. Um, I was also interested in their connections, this man called Jan Masalik. Um, so he is an Austrian fugitive businessman connected to the Russian military intelligence service, GRU. 
Um, and Masalek apparently is um, was a key player in a huge fraud case known as the Wirecard scandal in Germany. Wirecard was a payment processing company that collapsed due to corrupt business practices. And Masalek, um, he once lived in Munich and he lived opposite the Russian consulate. And then apparently later on, he made contacts with Russian intelligence through something called the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society, which sounds nice, warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah. Ros- um, the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society is a networking society that hosts meetings between Austrians and Russians in on areas such as agriculture, politics, education, and culture. Um, and since the founding of the club, it's worked very closely with the Russian embassy and the ambassador to Austria um, is the honorary president of that society. So I think through the um, Austrian-Russian fr- um, Friendship Society, which is known as the ORFG, that's probably where Marcelic made um, a connection with Russian intelligence with the GRU. Um, so yeah, and and so it's that that was quite an interesting little standout for me. Um, and then again, my inner uh, inner George Smiley wants to know what is the motivation? Was it money? Or did they have some, because they were all Bulgarians, did they have some sort of family legacy that goes back to the Mm. Soviet days? Um, And Bulgaria is an interesting kind of country as well, because the relations between Bulgaria and Russia are a bit rocky. Uh, Bulgaria has expelled a lot of um, Russian diplomats, and I say diplomats in quotation marks, um, over the years. I think the Russians attempted to execute a coup in bulgaria recently yeah yeah, exactly blew up a military base Uh um now bulgaria obviously it joined nato and the eu which were big no-nos for russia so i think russia definitely has plans to as you're saying with this coup to sort of um get its hands on bulgaria but also bulgaria um with the eu membership offers a, a useful tool for recruitment because eu passport holders have easier access to europe and the uk um and so that could be why those individuals um were sort of targeted and recruited by russian intelligence to operate on their behalf and i do wonder and this again is um a running theme so get your vodkas out or whatever it is you celebrate with uh, drinking games um i do wonder if these people had right-wing views um, because there's this sort of profile that I'm finding of people who support Russia, who have these very extreme ultra-nationalist right-wing views and anti-woke views, and Russia presents itself as um, very anti-woke and the saviour of the white Christian world. And I do wonder maybe if these individuals fit that profile and fit that belief, um, and that's why they ended up spying for Russia. But again, I am totally speculating that I could be dead wrong the motivation could be just more straightforward it's money um maybe they didn't have great employment prospects in bulgaria i don't know so it's it's this is an interesting case and i and i, and I hope more comes out so we can get some more definitive answers on their motivation yeah. and stuff what was the name of that uh group you mentioned the austro-russian friendship council was that it yeah, yeah yeah that's it so the orfg the austrian russian friendship society yeah there needs to be like for those meetings of that group there needs to be like a big flashing neon sign <laughs> yeah. over it that says yeah. spies hang out here yeah yeah you know yeah and there must be others across europe as well it might even be one in england um some sort of russian british friendship society um, they must be all yeah. over the place it's sort of soft is, I mean, obviously, there they will there will be some legitimate 
activity going on that is very basic and non-exciting but at the same time it does present this little opportunity for um you know talent spotting on the russian intelligence part and maybe maybe as well the austrian intelligence services are kind of using it as a kind of counterintelligence place as well to keep an eye on things who knows it's yeah. yeah interesting i mean something that stood out to me about the story it's it's very old school you mm. know i mean there's a there's a long history of bulgarians being used by the kgb to do yeah. various bits of yeah. dirty work yeah. during the cold war assassinations and stuff uh specifically um you know there's a uh from russia with love has a bulgarian assassin working working for the kgb kind of uh reminded me of that um, I mean, I think from a from a counterintelligence perspective, like for MI5 and stuff, it sort of complicates the work because, I mean, it's not even like you're just looking at Russian nationals. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's nationals of, of third countries mm. like Bulgaria mm. that have European passports that can move through the uh, Schengen zone very easily mm. that could potentially be Russian assets that you also have to worry about now. Yeah, um, I have a, yeah. Uh, a very unexciting but mildly funny bulgarian embassy story um okay. so back in 2004 um i used to really fancy this this girl at my university who was not bulgarian but somehow she was involved with some charity event at the bulgarian embassy in london and i and i mm -hmm. got myself all suited and booted and was there to help um <laughs> <laughs> and um, I ended up getting lost in the Bulgarian embassy um, and ended up on the top floor, stuck in this office, trying to work out how the hell to get out. And then it struck me afterwards, I thought, wonder if I'd accidentally walked in on the uh, where the, uh, you know, the Bulgarian intelligence services operate from on the top floor of the embassy or something. You know, my imagination yeah. went wild after the fact. But uh, it was quite fun just at this sort of weird function that evening. And actually, how easy it was to walk around this um, embassy without really any major security. <laughs> so it was kind of kind of interesting <laughs> it's kind of surprising i mean so dc mm. is um kind of famously uh you can go like trick-or-treating through like mm -hmm. the embassies on like embassy row and stuff and and many of them kind of you know uh, like open the doors mm. and and you can come through and i i did that once uh years ago um yeah it's kind of interesting just how you're just kind of walking around this embassy yeah yeah um, it is just strange isn't it and it, it does feel a bit like a spy movie and a bit surreal but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good fun all right anything else to add about this no other than you know uh we've got had quite a few spy scandals in the uk recently uh so we've got this sort of chinese one didn't we <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about another one next mm. so uh we're gonna look at a trio of articles from the guardian the bbc and the spectator that discuss recent aggressive chinese intelligence activities against mm -hmm. the uk uh, these articles collectively shed light on a significant and concerning espionage case involving allegations of Chinese spying in the UK, the arrest of a parliamentary researcher with connections to prominent Tory MPs, has raised questions about the evolving nature of espionage, the challenges in detecting such activities, and the broader issue of Chinese interference in democratic processes. Uh, in this context, it's crucial to explore the details and implications of this espionage case, as well as the UK's response to the growing threat posed by Chinese intelligence operations. So here are some key points from all three articles together, and we'll have links to all this in the show notes, of course. Um, so two men were arrested under the Official Secrets Act in the UK due to allegations of espionage involving a parliamentary researcher with ties to senior Tory MPs, including Security Minister Tom Tugendhat and Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Alicia Kearns. The arrests were conducted by the Metropolitan Police's Counterterrorism Command, accompanied by searches at multiple locations. The Interparliamentary Alliance on China, 
expressed deep concern about the infiltration of the UK Parliament by an individual acting on behalf of China. Traditional espionage methods have evolved into cyber espionage, creating challenges in identifying and countering espionage activities. China's extensive and well-resourced intelligence services employ a whole-of-state approach, making detection difficult. The UK appeared slow to recognize the extent of the challenge posed by Chinese intelligence activities with unclear responsibilities among government departments. The UK recently passed the National Security Act to address these issues, but its full implementation is pending. Espionage remains a concern, but the greater threat lies in subversion and interference in UK democracy. MI5 issued a security alert regarding Chinese interference, and other countries like Canada have initiated inquiries into foreign interference in their elections. China employs a multifaceted approach, including espionage, propaganda, economic investment, political lobbying, and cyber activities, making it an insidious and continuous threat to national security. Chris, any thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting one. Um, my first reaction to this story, which is a, a bit bad of me, um, was that I was I was kind of half joking with a friend of mine. I was like, thank God it wasn't a Labour MP who was caught up in all this, was my first reaction, <laughs> which You're just not wrong. shows my political bias there. Because um, I think it was last year we had a Labour MP called Barry Gardner, who was associated with a, a lady named Christina Lee, who was accused of being engaged in political interference activities on behalf of the Chinese state. Um, and Barry was then the chair of a disbanded Chinese in Britain um, parliamentary group that received £500,000 worth of donations from Christine Lee. And Christine Lee, MI5, had warned about and stuff. And so it was all all a bit of a, a hullabaloo last year. Um, and obviously now this year, it's this guy called Chris Cash. So security officials believe he was recruited um, as a sort of sleeper agent uh, whilst he was living and working in China, apparently. Obviously, this case is ongoing, so we don't know if Mr. Cash is guilty because we don't actually know at this time. The police and intelligence services, I would like to presume, have a strong case against him and felt confident that they could get a prosecution, but they could be wrong. It has happened in the past. Um, and it kind of reminds me of a case from America uh, of a guy called Clen Duffy Shriver. I don't know if that name rings the bells. There's a really good FBI warning video about this man. Um, because basically he was an American student who was living um, living abroad um, in, I think it was Shanghai. Um, and he answered, a, and he was basically, he was sort of looking, um, looking for money and employment. And he, um, he answered an advert about writing a paper on US-China relations with regards to Taiwan and North Korea. And unknown to Shriver at the time, the people who um, who basically paid him to write this article and to get his insight, um, it was basically Chinese intelligence. It was a front for Chinese intelligence that hired him to do that, put out this advert. And um, as he his relationship kind of grew with these people, um, as did their kind of expectations and as did money, more money was exchanging hands. And after a while, Shriver, it was suggested to him to maybe apply for some jobs in the American government so he could get greater insight, so he can write more papers and get more money. And in time, his handlers even paid for him to do the foreign service exam, which he failed a few times and eventually he passed it. And then it was when he went to apply for a job at the CIA that Shriver's sort of duplicity was discovered because he failed a polygraph test. And also, I think the CIA and FBI, through the application process, suddenly realized he had some dodgy connections. Um, and 
and it all kind of blew up and um he went to jail i think he's out now but he basically yeah he 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 went to jail for having the intention to spy for china and he accepted a lot of money um i think he got about sixty thousand dollars just to take the various foreign service exams and stuff so really the moral of the tale is americans and british people in particular need to be very careful when especially students when working in china because there does seem to be an effort to recruit yeah british and american students who have the possibility to going into british and american government a bit like the cambridge five you know you get them early yeah. you get them as students when they're a bit sort of uh you know wet behind the ears a bit naive or whatever a bit idealistic um and you give them money which is what students want so you give them a sense of importance um and and before you know it you've got yourself a sleeper agent so it does make me wonder whether chris cash may have had some sort of similar experience so if mr cash is guilty and we don't know at this time because it is an ongoing court case but if he is guilty it is concerning that he had such close proximity to mps but obviously if he's not guilty then that proximity is kind of natural isn't it so you know it's a bit tricky on that one but if he is guilty of spying for china then obviously that proximity to mps could have given him access to sensitive information i think it 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 goes to show that you know it's a reminder that china is playing a very different game with yeah, the west yeah i mean to be clear about that you know like this these articles mentions china's whole of state approach to to intelligence which says that they will operationalize any kind of asset that they have any corporation any individual any academic like any anyone any chinese affiliated person or entity can be used to further Chinese intelligence operations at any time. Mm-hmm. I mean, so like the CIA has a national resources division, right? Which basically like if there's a, a U.S. person, an academic, a researcher, you know, whoever, a business person who say travels to China and on their trip, they may have heard or seen or kind of been in in a circle that could be of potential interest mm-hmm. to the CIA, mm-hmm. right? Officers from the national resources division will come out and 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 ask to interview them and say, hey, this is interesting to us. Can you can you talk to us? But that person can say no. They're not obligated to do that. But, you know, if you're if you're a, a Chinese business person or an academic or even even a Chinese student uh, overseas and someone from the Ministry of State Security calls and said, we need you to do X or whatever, you can't say no. You know, like you're automatically kind of just deputized. Mm. And that's a very different it's a it's a very effective force multiplier that our system of governments don't allow us to have. Um, you know, like you also have China has the advantage of they're not thinking in two and four year increments between elections, you know, where a different party can come into power and kind of drastically change policy overnight. You know, they're able to think very long term and like to you mentioned put people who who potentially have Chinese who, who who are sympathetic to China in positions overseas and watch them kind of grow and develop you know um, they have they have that benefit I mean I think like in recent years Western Europe has tried to forge a more productive relationship with China like France with Macron Germany with Olaf Schultz has been kind of uh, very kind of keen on that and in a way that's that's our fault in the United States, you know, with, you know, Trump drastically kind of changing how the U.S. operates on the global stage. Again, overnight, 
you know, has kind of, and with the potential of him coming back again, it's, it's, it's hurt the ability of the U.S. to be seen as a reliable partner that no matter who's in office, a Democrat or a Republican, our foreign policy vis-a-vis our relationship with our European allies will roughly kind of not change at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, this is, I, I, you know, China and Russia tend to be very loyal to the countries they do support on a very long-term right. basis, whilst Western support tends to be a bit fickle because it's down to which government is in power at that time. So, right. and that, that can be very appealing sometimes for countries. Yeah. Think, when dealing. I mean, so my point there is, is, you know, Europeans can try and forge a more productive relationship mm. with China. And I think that's, that's earnest to an extent from an economic standpoint, there's a lot of benefits there, but I think Europeans should also ask themselves whether China is trying to forge a productive relationship with them. You know, mm. um, the other issue here is, is the, vast variety of of issues that are of intelligence interest to China. I mean, you think traditionally um, stuff like military readiness, mm. you know, um, intelligence uh, sources and methods, um, internal kind of political deliberations and stuff. That's all old school, old school targets for intelligence collection. Mm. But the Chinese are interested in vastly more things, you know, stuff like... Um, uh, broad user metadata from cell phone and internet networks. Mm. Um, you know, these, uh, like 23andMe, these like, you know, genealogy companies that you send off your, your DNA information. I mean, China's interested in harvesting that data for all kinds of potentially. (laughs) Yeah. China's interested in sending off in, in harvesting that for potentially all kinds of really, uh, nefarious shit, you know? Um, the other issues there is, I mean, if you're if you're an employee of MI6 or the MOD or GCHQ, like you know that you're a potential target for a Chinese intelligence operation, you know, and and you're 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 trained in operational security, you're you're aware that you're a target, and and yeah, you're you're given the ability and and the knowledge that you can use to protect yourself against those kind of advances. But let's say if you're a professor in a department of some university that's doing like advanced bioengineering research that the Chinese are really interested in, you don't necessarily think that that you're going to be targeted by, by by Chinese intelligence. You know, you don't take the same you don't take the same measures to lock down your communications, your phone, your computer. You know, you're not on the lookout for for suspicious people trying to get information from you and potentially subvert you. So that's mm. that's a difficulty too. Well, this is it. I think people have just got to be a bit wiser and less naive about Chinese relations. A bit like with that we were talking about earlier with the Austrian Russian um, friendship organization ORFG. Right. You know, um, those organizations will have some legitimate sort of uh, business going on, but they will also there'll be an opportunistic side of it that is a front for some sort of intelligence gathering. And people got to be aware of that. We can't be sort of naive about this anymore. Well, that's, I mean, I I thought this with our, with our last story, but I guess, you know, it's a good place to say it kind of like explicitly. If you're, if you're a person who has kind of only the best intentions when you involve yourself in a group like the, the, um, the Austrian Russian friendship group or some kind of, uk chinese dialogue thing right you can get involved with that for the with with the best intentions and and not have any any intent to be involved in intelligence gathering at all right but 
if you get involved in such an organization in the year of our Lord, 2023, what do you think is going on just behind the curtain? Mm, mm. You know, like, why would you even kind of expose yourself to, to the potential of being used in that regard? You know, so your point of don't be naive, mm, yeah, you know? Yeah, you just got to, you know, sadly, we live in an age where you just have the better in mind, you know? I mean, obviously, anybody who does business with China is going to be at risk to that. Um, and obviously, internationally, we do need to do business with China. We can't yes. cut ourselves off. And I don't think, you know, there's a very strong argument in economics that the more you're an economic partner, some of the less likely they're going to start shooting at you. Um, I think it's Keynesian economics, isn't it? Um, and and um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of things, positive things from an economic relationship with China. But we just got to bear all this in mind, as you were saying, like, um, Chinese companies are bound by law to uh -huh. help the Chinese state, whether they like it or not. Um, and so, you know, you've got to bear that stuff in mind. Um, and, and again, like we, we've mentioned it before, TikTok, um, which is one of the most popular apps in, in the, the West at the moment, is Chinese-owned. Yes. Um, and so is harvesting probably all sorts of data about people. Yeah, and it's still kind of unclear as to, as to what, information they're gathering mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and i mean so in the u.s tiktok has a u.s based entity but that's controlled by the you know chinese head office back home and it's really not clear as to what kind mm -hmm. of firewall there is if any mm -hmm. separating the two when they've used it to spy on journalists who are critical um of the chinese sure. government and thing i think we talked about yeah. that a good few episodes ago um so yeah it does happen yeah and then there's another thing as well rory cormack said in one of the articles about china's not just interested in espionage but they're also in interested in subverting the british political process um yeah. and so trying to um persuade people's thinking about china is very much on the agenda as well so if mr cash is guilty and we don't know at this time because it is an ongoing court case but if he is guilty it is concerning that he had such close proximity to MPs. You know, we had a we had a similar story over here um, a couple of years ago with um, mm. Eric Eric Swalwell, a congressman who was who was on the House Intelligence Committee, yeah. I believe. Um, and there was a, a Chinese national who tried to get very kind of cozy with him, um, and and the FBI came and gave him what's called the defensive briefing, which is basically you know so the FBI would do this or MI five would do this as well. They would come and sit down and say, yeah, you're being targeted by this hostile foreign intelligence mm -hmm. services and take means to protect yourself, you know, um, and that's what happened. So, yeah, that's not just because you're approached by a Chinese intelligence official doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing something wrong, mm -hmm. but it means that you need to you need to be aware that you're being used. Yeah. And the other interesting thing, they're not always going to use Chinese nationals to achieve their aims. They're recruiting right. British and American people. Uh, and like the Bulgarians yeah. with the Russians, yeah, that we just talked about. Exactly, exactly, because they make the perfect spy in many respects, because they're the ones you don't suspect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's it, people need to be cautious. Yep, well said. Okay, well, moving on. Uh, in a new interview with The Insider, co-written by Michael Weiss, uh, Estonia's outgoing military intelligence chief, Colonel Margot Grossberg, gives key insights into Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing conflict's dynamics. Grossberg's role at the forefront of Estonia's Defense Forces Intelligence Center for the past five years has afforded him a unique perspective on the geopolitical landscape in Eastern Europe. The article details a few fascinating moments leading up to and during the first hours of the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Estonia's intelligence efforts, and Grossberg's assessment of the war's current status and potential future developments. So here's a few 
key points. This is a really, this is a really cool a great um, article, yeah. interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so in February 2022, Russian forces attempted to seize Hostomel Airport near Kiev as part of their invasion of Ukraine with elite airborne troops on board IL-76 trans- transport planes aiming to take control of the Ukrainian government. Estonia's military intelligence agency provided an advance warning to their Ukrainian counterparts about the Russian plan, which could have changed the course of the invasion if successful. Estonia's military intelligence chief, Colonel Marco Grossberg, emphasized that Russia's failure to adequately prepare for the war has contributed to its prolonged duration. Dictatorships often provide leaders with biased information, and Russia has made strategic mistakes. Estonia's intelligence had been monitoring concerning signals about Russia's intentions since spring 2021, noticing unusual troop movements and unreturned units following the Zapad military drill in September 2021. Grossberg's agency also accurately predicted Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2024, uh, while Estonia's intelligence detected early indications of the Russian invasion in 2022, they underestimated the start of the war due to a miscalculation of Russia's forces and decision-making. Um, he acknowledges that Russia has adapted during the war as seen in their response to Ukrainian HIMARS strikes and strategic withdrawals. Uh, Grossberg believes Putin has enough resources to continue the war for an extended period, but highlights the importance of Western sanctions and support for Ukraine. He dismisses concerns about crossing Russia's red lines for escalation, including the use of nuclear weapons. He kind of interesting, interestingly compares that to U.S. red lines with, with Syria and how those weren't enforced. The timeline for Russia to restore its military capabilities after the war depends on when and how it ends, with estimates ranging from three to five years that they would be able to attack another neighboring country, such as, you know, in the Baltics. Uh, the balance of forces in the conflict is equal, and the fight is more about exerting will and maintaining pressure than territorial gains. Uh, weather conditions this this coming winter uh, may impact the course of the conflict, with a harsh winter potentially leading to large maneuvers. So, like, the ground is frozen, so you can move tanks around more easily. Uh, Grossberg leaves his post with pride in his agency's accomplishments, including maintaining preparedness and preventing any surprise attacks on Estonia despite the ongoing war in Ukraine. Chris, what do you think? This was a great article, and I've got multiple thoughts here. So, <laughs> so I'll try my best to get through them. Um, so first of all, that opening thing about the Hostomel Airport um, situation yeah. is a brilliant example of how intelligence can win or lose wars. Um, because yep. had those troops landed and the Ukrainians not reacted in the way they did, they, the war could have been and ended that day let me give a couple more details for mm. for listeners on on what exactly happened mm, with that mm. so this was in the opening hours of the invasion like the first night right and uh there were russian airborne units um paratroopers basically kind of very like elite russian units in uh scove that were boarding up onto these transport planes to land at hosmel airport in kiev which is just north of the city and they were planning to use that as to establish an air bridge there and more quickly run down and capture Kiev yeah. and decapitate the government, yeah. right? So the Estonians uh, noticed that these planes were being loaded up in in Skov and notified the Ukrainians that, you know, they're coming to Hostomel Airport, like, stop them. And, um, and the Ukrainians, like, pretty much cratered the runway at Hostomel um, to make it unusable. I think that a Russian helicopter was shot down on on the runway um so these troops couldn't land um yeah 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 and and he's a brilliant use of intelligence and 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 decisive action 
Um, and and honestly, that you know that did change the war totally. And I think that you know Putin uh, probably you know that idea that he thought he could win it in a few days was probably based on that very tactic and that very operation. I mean, I think the war isn't won yet. No, not even close. No, things could still change. There's a lot of there's a lot of 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 stuff out there that could affect the outcome quite dramatically. But I I think there's hopefully the we'll look back in a in a couple years maybe and see that battle at Hosmel Airport in the opening hours of the invasion as sort of the decisive battle of the whole campaign where I think I think if if things continue on the hopeful trajectory that we all want we'll look back at that really the first battle of the war as yeah. the one that kind of eventually decided the outcome because to your point if they had been able to establish that air bridge and reach mm. and reach Kiev I think we'd be in a very different situation right now oh no definitely definitely and um, there was another interesting thing in there as well. He, he was critical of the of the West's sort of reluctance to supply Ukraine with the weapons um, and equipment that Zelensky asked for on day one. Um, and the problem is these delays give Russia a strategic advantage because it gives them a way to adapt to these weapons. Um, and even so, like the HIMARS and even the F-16s that are coming, the Russians have time to um, change their tactics to adapt to that delay. Uh, and yeah. to that new weapon that's going to come onto the battlefield. Um, so that's something that definitely needs to really be sorted now. I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've I've been one preaching caution all the way through the last year of us talking about this. Um, sure. And I still think there is a degree of caution still needed. We can't underestimate um, Putin, the fact that he has nuclear weapons, or that if Russia collapsed, yeah. those nuclear weapons could go into God knows whose hands. But at the same time, it, it's also been noted that there are no specific red lines for Putin about Ukraine. So um, so maybe it is a better option just to um, defeat Russia as quickly as possible on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general the stance that we should push to end the war as quickly as possible. I mean, the longer it goes on, the more chances there are for, you know, us to lose our minds again over here and totally just up in NATO, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think, you know, I think Putin, as as it was said in his article, Putin's, the Russians have got the capacity to continue this war for at least another year and a half. And I think they're definitely the strategies just to see what happens in the American election. Um, so yeah, they're going to drag it out as long as possible. So I think the Biden administration probably, if they really do care about defeating Russia or Ukrainian independence, I think they need to speed certain things up now and do what they can to defeat Russia. Definitely. At the end of the article, there's a description about how failure is written into the job of being an intelligence chief. And there's an example about one could detect an imminent Russian plan to invade Estonia. Estonia could take defensive positions, you know, sort of calling up all their young people to join the armed forces which would have an effect on damaging the economy and then russia might decide not to invade and you'll never know exactly why even though the intelligence was correct and because the country was prepared for war and then didn't have it they when it happens again which it could do they might decide not to ready themselves in the same way as they did before so i thought that was a really interesting little uh, note towards the end of the article there um so yeah no i think it's a brilliant article so i think you know thank you for including yeah. that yeah definitely definitely go read it guys um all right moving on to our last uh topic for today uh so we have kind of staying with the russians um we have victor boot the infamous arms trafficker widely known as the merchant of death there was a there was a great book about him yeah um, that I don't I don't have it here with me in my office, but there's a really great book about about his career and how he came to 
how he sort of, you know, got established. Um, so uh, Victor Boot is attempting to embark on a new career path in Russian politics. After serving 15 years of his 25-year prison sentence in the United States, Boot was released as part of a prisoner exchange for basketball star Brittany Griner. He's now vying for a position in the Regional Assembly of Ulyanovsk, a move that raises questions about his reinvention and the Kremlin's motivation. Uh, this article delves into Boot's unlikely political journey, shedding light on his background, aspirations, and the complexity of his return to Russian society. So a couple couple points here. Um, so Victor Boot, uh, you know, the famous arms dealer, uh, this is, is attempting to reinvent himself as a local politician in Russia. Uh, he's running as a candidate for the regional assembly in Ulyanovsk, which is about, I think it's uh, uh, 400, mi- 400 miles east of Moscow. So way out in the provinces. Um, so he's doing this despite his criminal past and, and lack of political experience. Um, he joined Russia's Liberal Democratic Party, uh, a nominally opposition party with ties to the Kremlin, uh, four days after returning to Russia from the United States in a prisoner exchange. Boot's political platform and connections to the Ulyanovsk region are unclear, but he expressed a desire to gain a deeper understanding of the country after being absent for 15 years. His candidacy for a low-level position suggests that he may lack high-level political support from the Kremlin. Despite his return to politics, Boot claims to have no intention of returning to his previous arms trafficking activities. He met with uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, before Prigozhin's death, but Boot did not provide details about their discussions. Boot declined to comment on whether his exchange for American basketball star Brittany Griner was a fair trade and expressed sympathy for Griner's arrest in Russia. Uh, he called for an end to countries using prisoner swaps and espionage allegations as political tools and suggested that the United States stop, quote, hunting for Russians. That's that's a little too cute by half for me. Um, Chris. Yeah, I think it should be a T-shirt. Victor Bout, stop hunting for Russians. I do quite yeah. well. Um, I've also got another, sorry, Victor Boot. It's not Victor Bout. I always call Victor Bout. It's Victor Boot. And I think there's a really, if I was Canadian, there's a really bad uh, Victor Boot. Uh, joke where he's oot and a boot um but anyway so so uh, victor victor boot um he's joining a long line of russian bad actors who've got into russian politics andre lugovoy and obviously maria butina come to mind um the liberal democratic party of russia despite its name there is nothing liberal about that party it's actually an ultra nationalist right-wing party in russian politics that seeks the revival of russia as a great power uh, and it supports the restoration of Russia's natural borders, which includes Transcaucasia, Central Asia, Belarus, and Ukraine, which does explain a few things there. The United Russia Party, which is the one Maria Butina is a part of, is also a conservative party, and it has strong links to the Russian Orthodox Church, and the party itself is part of the All Russia People's Front, which is a political coalition led by President Vladimir Putin. I guess becoming a politician in Russia gives you a certain level of protection and power for these individuals. Um, so if a country in the future were to seek a, an arrest of Victor Boot, um, in the future, it would mean arresting a Russian politician. Um, right. And so I think that gives him a, a useful level of protection. And it's interesting to note that it's reported that when he was at the African summit, Boot was passionately defending his country's policies on Ukraine and echoing a line among many pro-war elites that Russia's true enemy is not Ukraine and is actually fighting a larger proxy war with the West. So thank you for confirming that, Victor Boot. Um, 
Um, and he also um, said that the United States is doomed to lose that war. It was also noted that uh, Boot doesn't come across as a natural politician or interact much with other team members. So uh, it doesn't look like he's very interested in actually participating in that role, which makes me think that this is sort of like a cover role to give him protection and maybe give him an option to go to Africa and start getting up to stuff with his old contacts. Um, right. Even though he said his old contact list is sort of dried up in Africa, and he even says that regimes are changing quicker than the weather in Africa. But the thing is, yeah. a lot of those coups that we talked about in the last episode do have links to Russia. So there's something going on here. Um, Color me skeptical. I don't think Victor Boot is a changed man. I don't think that he's suddenly no. gone into politics for noble reasons because he cares about some issue like potholes or something. Um, he there is something afoot here. I think. I mean, when he was when he was released, and I, I'll in a minute. I want to talk about you know should he have been released and the yeah. whole issue around that. But when he was released, there was a lot of people saying like, oh, you know, this dangerous arms dealer. He's going to go right back to being an arms dealer again. And I thought, well, potentially. But to your point earlier, he's been in prison for fifteen years. He served you know two thirds of his of his sentence. His contacts are all kind of dried up. But also, he's kind of just widely exposed and 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 known and that doesn't i would assume that doesn't really help you to be an attractive business partner in the world of of of, of arms dealing no. you know and let's say he did go back to being an arms dealer and travel to some third country in in africa so arrest him again or kill him but can can they arrest a serving politician in in a russian politician why not if 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 you have if you have evidence that he's that he's actively trafficking arms across international borders you know mm. i mean yeah the russians would would, would protest but you know yeah. okay what okay would it lead a tit for tat where i don't know an american politician was going to get arrested by russians in somewhere well in a way i mean i think we already kind of have that you know i mean so like Brittany griner i think was very dumb to go through moscow an airport in russia with uh thc oil on her person yeah. you know like what do you think is going to happen to you um i mean yes the russians are taking uh, are arresting americans like uh evan evan gershkowitz the um wall street journal reporter who's in prison right now you know um yeah they're doing this deliberately they're 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 taking hostages you know i mean the russian system doesn't work so that like I mean, here, if you're going to arrest someone, you have to be able to demonstrate in a court that they've committed crimes. You have to display yeah. evidence. Yeah. You can't just lock them up because of their passport, you know? But in that respect, I, I think Brittany Griner, yes, I think was dumb to do what she did. I think also, though, she's an American citizen and the government has a duty to do what it can to bring her home oh, yeah. and not to languish in a Russian prison camp for the rest of her life on bullshit charges, you know? And and the problem is, though, when Brittany Geiner does something stupid and allows herself to be taken hostage, it puts national security at risk that now we have to release this asshole back into the world because you made a dumb mistake. You know, it's a bit of a different circumstance with with Evan Gershkowitz. I mean, I, I get totally get why you would need to be in Russia to report on the ground about what's happening there. It's, it, it's noble. It's, it's, I get it. But at the same point, I think you need to ask yourself, given your passport and your citizenship, are you making yourself a target that will put your country's national security at risk? 
because now the Russians have him in a prison. The U.S. government has a duty to do what it can to bring him home. And the Russians are asking for, I think it's a, a, a GRU assassin who's in yeah. prison in Germany. Yeah. That's who they want back yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to get Evan Gershkowitz back. You know, so like, I don't think there is any reason right now for any U.S. citizen, anyone with a U.S. passport, or even a British passport for that matter, you know, to be in Russia right now. You're opening up yourself to being taken hostage and your government will have to make painful concessions to get you back. Yeah, and it's naivety and hubris, I think, are the two main reasons what leads to this i think um yeah so it's yeah and it's you know and and yeah exchanging an assassin for a journalist or an arms dealer for a basketball player in the grand scheme Mm -hmm. of things on a mathematical level it doesn't seem right does it um on a humanitarian level i'm totally for it but it's just um yeah yeah victor victor boot is uh you know he's been associated with you know he's known as the merchant of death isn't he that's his nickname um yeah there's a lot mm. of conflicts in africa in the 90s mm, and the mm. in the early 2000s and stuff that he totally fueled yeah yeah and he's hardly um a saint so it's no no it's ridiculous really it's I, yeah it's interesting um with that prison exchange about whether there were other options of people to exchange but i'm assuming there weren't really um well i think mm. You know, there's Paul Whelan, um, who's still, I think there's some questions on what he was up to in in Russia. But if if the Russians arrest you, arrest you, as they have Evan Gershkowitz and Paul Whelan, Mm. and claim that you're an intelligence officer, that you're a spy in the country, their policy is, I will only exchange a spy for another spy. So if they arrest you and say that you're a spy, regardless of whether or not that's complete bullshit... Mm. You're only going to get out if if your government gives them a spy that they want back. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough thing. And and I mean, yeah, I think there was a lot of of around the time of this swap, mm. there was a lot of mm. yeah, you're giving up an arms dealer for this, you know, basketball mm. star. That's mm. not fair. No, it's not. But the U.S. government, she's a U.S. citizen, as is Evan Gershkowitz. They don't deserve to languish in a Russian prison camp. And and their their government has a duty to do what mm. it can to bring mm. them home. Mm. But at the same point, I'll say again, there's an issue of personal responsibility here and asking yourself, are you making yourself a target to being taken hostage that your government will then have to put its national security at risk to get you back? Well, yeah, I think only people who have diplomatic protection should be in Russia right now if you're a British or American. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. But get into politics. Do what Victor Boot's doing, and then sure. <laughs> become a local MP, and then go to Russia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, um, anything else you want to say about that? Um, no, I think I think we've covered everything there. Really, on the on yeah. Victor Victor Boot, who I always want to call Victor Bout, is a bad habit, but it is Boot. I know. I yeah. yeah. My brain sees it and wants to. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but there we go. So he's yeah. booting a boot. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> for now anyway for now, yes. all right well that about uh that about wraps up this one year anniversary edition of espresso yes. martini um links to the articles we discussed today will be in the show notes chris and i are going to continue our conversation on extra shot if you're a subscriber we'll see you there shortly um and if not we'll hope you sign up and join us uh if you enjoy the show and what we do here please leave a rating and review on your podcast streaming app of choice it really helps listeners discover the show thanks for listening everyone thank you everybody take care thank you Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.